Hello, you are listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. I'm so excited that you're spending your precious time with us today. Today, I've got an amazing guest all the way from the UK, Bristol, not Bristol, Bryden, <laughs> Bryden <laughs> in the UK. Nathan Illman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, for sure. So let me tell you a little bit about Nathan. So Nathan is a clinical psychologist and founder of Nurse Wellbeing Mission, an organization designed to help prepare nurses and midwives for emotionally challenging work. His desire to support nurses was ignited from the lack of emotional support he witnessed in his clinical roles and observations as a service user in healthcare. He currently lives in Brighton, not Bristol, UK, and is a dad to an energetic toddler and a husband to a wonderful wife. So excited to have you here. Let's kick off with you sharing kind of your journey, your career up until this point. I know you've done lots of amazing things. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about this yesterday. This kind of conversation gives you an opportunity to think about your past, doesn't it? So common we kind of recount academic or professional journey. But I think what's equally important is my sort of personal journey as well. Because I think my sort of, you know, I suppose the work I'm doing now is really what you would, someone would call like a well-being expert or something. But I think my own lived experience of mental ill health and that sort of thing is something that really contributes mm. to the work that I'm doing now. So if you like, I'm happy to share sort of both those kind of strands. Yes, for sure. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start with the professional and kind of academic stuff, you know. See, I'm a clinical psychologist. I qualified for my doctorate in clinical psychology, I think, seven years ago now. Trained in London at the Institute of Psychiatry. Prior to that, I'd actually started a sort of academic career. So after my undergraduate degree in psychology and management, I wanted to do a master's basically. And I was really interested in neuropsychology. So I'd done a project looking at memory disorders, basically. So I actually did a master's and then PhD in neuropsychology to begin with. So Mm. I worked with people with epilepsy who had memory difficulties and was trying to understand. To be honest, it was quite dry theoretical (laughs) stuff. And at the time it was good. Yeah, it helped me develop a lot of skills. But when I was working with the patients doing these quite boring memory assessments, I sort of had this feeling that, you know, maybe I could be or should be doing something that feels a bit more therapeutic and sort of helping people. So it was actually during my academic PhD, I realized I want to be doing the clinical work. A lot of my friends and peers during my undergraduate days, they had already decided they wanted to do clinical psychology and learn to be a therapist and all this stuff. And it it just wasn't really something that I'd aspired to do until I think I had a more sort of hands-on experience of working in hospitals and with patients and things. So yeah, I kind of had a bit of a taster for academic life during that. I mean, it was brilliant at the time. I was going to academic conferences in different countries, like when I was mm-hmm. 21, 22, yeah. presenting my work and stuff. It was a really amazing experience early on for me and really helped develop, like, I think my public speaking skills, kind of just skills and persistence and stuff for mm-hmm. long-term projects, because that's what's needed for a PhD. But anyway, yeah, so I kind of think my second year of my PhD thought, right, I actually want to pursue clinical psychology now and just pretty crazy went on to do a second doctorate so step <laughs> back to back which my family were just bemused they just did not understand what are you doing 
<laughs> yeah. And my dad in particular, you know, I remember this conversation we had on sat on a bus, I think after we'd had a couple of drinks down the pub mm. and he said, so what are you actually going to do eventually? <laughs> it was a very traditional man and someone who wasn't particularly in touch with his emotions. And I think already was struggling when I was doing psychology was a bit confused as to what it would actually lead to. And the announcement of doing another doctorate, he just, you know, but over time, I think my family and you know everyone came to see where it was going. And anyway, yeah. So during that time, during my doctorate, you know, it's a really intense three years. You do multiple placements and lots of academic study and you have to do another doctoral thesis and all that stuff. I'd sort of developed an interest in working with nurses then, to be honest, because I had several roles where I worked in multidisciplinary teams with nurses. So one of which was like an older adult community mental health service working with psychiatric nurses and then a brain injury service, so an inpatient rehabilitation service. And that really became my main interest there because when I qualified, I went on to work in brain injury rehab primarily. So a lot of the work was with healthcare assistants, this is in the UK, and nurses. And of course, they're helping, to a certain extent, implement rehabilitation plans and stuff. I, I witnessed how little support they got, basically, professionally, within their profession, and in the particular organisation that I worked in. It just, I don't know, it just didn't seem like there was much organisational support. So yeah, I guess over the years of doing that, I did some formal and informal support for my nursing colleagues and the healthcare assistants, which I really enjoyed. And then I moved to Australia for a few years, as you know, to Melbourne and worked in intellectual disability services there. And my other brain injury role was a lot of work with support workers as well. So there was a common theme of really enjoying supporting the people who are supporting others. And that really drove my interest, I think, in working with nurses and a few other things happened in my personal life so last year i had to move back from melbourne suddenly because my dad had a heart surgery and then unfortunately I had to be put into a coma and had sepsis and was really unwell and i came back and experienced the amazing care that he received from nurses and really just noticed again how little support they got and the fact that you know i came in and i was only allowed to visit for a couple of hours but mm -hmm. the distress that the icu nurses had to experience sort of day in day out because my dad was you know there was personality change there was lots of difficult cognitive mm -hmm. things going on for him and that also kind of you know solidified this desire to want to support nurses so yeah I guess that kind of gives you a bit of a background of sort of where things led up to with nurse well-being mission we mm -hmm. can talk a bit more about what I do as part of that but I think like I said the other thing with respect to you know I'm really interested in preventative health mm -hmm. preventative mental mm -hmm. health and that has been driven by my own experiences of witnessing and experiencing mental ill health in my own life. And just being really frustrated, I think, with the current healthcare system and mental healthcare system and how reactive it, it is. And observing just the terrible situation with nurses and other healthcare staff over the past couple of years and how there's just such little stuff in place to help prepare people and to support them proactively. So yeah, when I was younger, I had a difficult time when I was a teenager. I grew up, my mum sort of spent periods of time in and out of depression. My brother experienced extremely prolonged periods of major depression. And I witnessed some pretty significant and distressing self-harm from my brother and really like suicidality in our household. Like sort of, you know, have these memories of 
sort of being quite on edge when I was a teenager coming home, like literally thinking, when is my brother going to kill himself, basically? So I had some pretty difficult experiences then. Luckily, I had a really good friendship group and lots of support systems in place that kind of protected me against that. But then ultimately, I went on to develop my own a really serious episode of depression myself when I was 21, I think. Suicidal ideation and self-harm, you know, it was really bad. It was a really, really dark time for me. And I was a student at the time and having the wisdom and stuff now of everything I've been through and the training I've been fortunate to have and all the things I've read and the work I do, I just know that a lot of stuff is preventable, you know, like, so for example, with students, and this is something that I'm really focusing on at the moment is with student nurses and midwives is we know risk factors for developing mental ill health. We've got plenty of extremely well-researched, robust ways of intervening to help mitigate against mental health conditions and students in general. But, you know, of course, I'm interested in student nurses, midwives, yet we're not doing it. We're not consistently implementing these things. We're focusing too much on task oriented. How do you do this task with this patient, this skill, and not focusing on, you know, let's try and capture the emotional side of things and actually prevent the preventable, basically. Hmm. So I think my own personal experiences have led to this real strong desire to sort of work on this stuff and make big changes. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing and sharing vulnerably as well. I know that a lot of people listening will resonate with your story and like your experience of the healthcare system. And most nurses would say that we 100% lack emotional support, you know, and then from a career space, from my angle, like emotional support, and then just like the growth, the investment, you know, having some clarity about where you're heading in your career. All of that is missing. And I think what you touched on there is a couple of things. One, I love that you positioned yourself and changed your career. And like, you were like, oh, I'm going to do this. And we talk about that all the time on the podcast, how important it is to just follow your passion and do the things that light you up. Who cares? Just like pave your own way, create your own path. So I love that. And then the other thing was about, you know, getting in and preventing the preventable. I think it's so fascinating, isn't it? As an industry, we really focus on preventing and now there's so much drive especially here in Australia preventing the preventable for our patients like we were saying like patients shouldn't be falling and patients shouldn't be having delirium patients shouldn't be having pressure injuries but we're not applying the same rule to the workforce across the board it's really really fascinating so what do you think are some of the challenges or why do you think it is that nurses are not getting the emotional support that we need and deserve well, I mean, I guess having not been trained as a nurse myself, in terms of understanding historically where nursing curriculum came from, I obviously don't know a detailed background about that. But I mean, my understanding from speaking to nurse friends and colleagues is that things have shifted over time. I spoke to a nurse recently who's a senior nurse. She's been in the profession for about 30 years. And she was talking about how when she trained, there was much more emphasis on peer and that kind of collegial support and focusing on person-centered care, basically. There was more time for compassionate care. There was more value placed on it historically. 30 years ago when she first trained and what I understand now from you know graduates or younger nurses or nurses who are training is that it's become much more focused on outcomes and much more focused on just learning the basic skills or tasks. I spoke to someone the other day, a nurse the other day who was explaining that you know in this country especially the way 
the curriculum is set up is essentially so that, and this is a bit of a simplification, I guess, but it kind of illustrates the point that really what they want is after three years, they want to know that you can be responsible for a bed of eight patients and that you can do all your OBS and you can, you know, you can basically keep them alive, keep those patients alive. And that completely removes the importance of that human element. So I expect there's been a number of kind of socio-cultural factors that have impacted the shift in education. Every country is different, of course, and the value the government places on healthcare, healthcare education, the funding that is received for it, that obviously affects and trickles down, doesn't it, into the system. So especially in the UK, I just think in society, we have a problem in general of not valuing enough people who are helpers. Yeah. Right? You know, there's, I think it was last week, our, you know, the woman who's potentially going to be our new prime minister here said, basically, there was some quote where she was Essentially saying British people are lazy. You know, the, the working population is lazy. Oh, <laughs> and I was oh thinking, this, you know, this generalisation, this is off the back of, you know, think about this, this, this 700,000 nurses and midwives in this country who have been breaking their backs to sort of support the country to hear that kind of message. And there's this focus on, again, it's, you know, it's output, isn't it? Get jobs done, get tasks yeah. done create more 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 but not focusing on our human needs basically yeah. so i think in society in general we have a bit of a a kind of compassion crisis basically mm, mm, yeah yeah i like that term i guess like as a psychologist i'm curious your thoughts about this and you've touched on it there around you know this whole idea that like we are just very task oriented instead we need to be more kind of like human first now second is kind of what i've kind of stole from i saw that online recently and i thought that's really great because the problem is i talk to people every day about their careers and about where they want to go in their life and they're really focused on like getting that extra qualification or getting that extra course or doing that study day to get something clinical to be able to deliver better care but what I've found to be true is that if we don't really look after ourselves and we don't put our own needs first, it gets to a point where, like myself, you burn out. Like throughout my career, we've talked about this before, but I had like multiple periods of time where I was depressed, I was anxious, despite on the exterior having all of the things, right? Like being the nurse unit manager and people thinking that I was fine, but seeing a therapist every week and having to work through like and rationalize why I hadn't prioritized my own needs as a nurse and I just kind of gone all in on the career. So tell us a little bit more about why it's important that nurses put themselves first in order to be a better clinician overall and a better human, like a more aligned human. Yeah, this I really speak this from the heart because it's something that I've had to shift myself as well. You know, I've obviously experienced that mental health, but other issues I've had as well, you know, going throughout my 20s, I've had problems with alcohol, body image issues, various things. And I've had not burnout as such, but definitely extreme stress from mm. different jobs that I've done. And I think what shifted for me was understanding that your health really is the foundation of everything else that's important to you in your life. And mm. I think the reason we struggle with this as humans is because all of our brains are hardwired for short-term reward. You know, we all suffer from this hardware problem, basically. Mm. An evolutionary hangover, it was beneficial to us in the past. But, you know, we want something to make us feel good. And we struggle to focus on long-term goals. And health, often health behaviours and self-care and focusing on ourselves requires that extra bit of motivation and effort than something that is perhaps unhealthy for us. 
So having a glass of wine or watching that extra hour of TV or whatever it is, or taking substances, anything is easier and will often provide you an initial short-term reward, which is better or feels better in that moment than doing, going and doing a run or something like that, right? That, I think that really helped sort of kind of build self-compassion as well. Yeah. So it helps us to realize that we all have this inherent issue. But nurses kind of, I suppose we all need to realize that that health is our foundation. So think about every role that's important to you in your life. Yeah. anyone listening so being a nurse is obviously important to you but i'm sure you have a role as being a wife maybe being a daughter being a friend and if you think about the kind of person you want to be in that role in your life and live into the values in those areas of your life if you have ill health it's very difficult to be the best version of yourself and taking care of ourselves then gives us the energy to do those things it just it makes it easier and for the long term as well so i'd say that's why nurses need to take care of themselves because ultimately if you are engaging in regular and effective self-care you're going to be a badass nurse you're going to be much mm -hmm. more effective and that you know something i've learned and with people that i work with it just is the end result right you, yeah. you, you yeah. shift things around you put more of a focus on your own health and yes it is more effort to begin with but it reaps rewards. It really does reap rewards. Yeah, I love that. That's what we communicate here at High Performance Nursing is that, you know, it's not about being like the elite clinician or like being the best clinician. It's about being the best version of yourself. And I think that we can all probably agree that like having a glass of wine here or overindulging here or over shopping or whatever you do, all of the overing or the undering or whatever you do, all of that has like a net negative effect on our life as we kind of move forward. And it's really like it becomes pivotal when we have those moments of burnout, like those mental health scares, those mental health challenges that come from really not prioritizing our well-being as we move through our careers. And nursing and health in general, but unlike any other career path, we see things that like no one should ever see. You know, that like, I remember when I first moved to Australia, one of the first tasks I had to do was take a patient down to the mortuary and put them into the fridge. Like it sounds, it's so grim, but I never done that. In the UK, we don't do that. In the UK, it's the porters take them and I feel really sorry for the porters now, but the porters would take them down. In Australia, we take them to the fridge. We have to do all of that. And that's just such a like bizarre task to complete. It is so strange. And then you leave doing that job and you go back up to your patients who are very much alive, hopefully, then I go and eat your lunch and do all of these things. So the variety and the extremes, like the polarity of nursing is in midwifery is so immensely taxing on us physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of the things. So, you know, in terms of preventing that or like really focusing on well-being, what would that look like for nurses if they were to start taking action and exploring, you know, how they could take better care of themselves? Because a lot of nurses are like skeptical of self-care. I think a lot of them are like, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but how do we do it? Like we're so busy is one excuse that I hear a lot is that we're so, so busy. And I used to run that story. What can they do? I think starting small is really the key. And I think what's really important to know is that self-care doesn't have to be these kind of huge, like long-winded things. You know, it doesn't have to be a weekend away or retreat or something or a holiday for a week. Really, what we know about the science of building our own health is that it's done through small habits that we do each day. So 
often people get a bit overwhelmed by the idea of self-care and they might hear about some self-care activity and they just think that's not for me. I think we all have to experiment with what works best for us. So let's take exercise, for example. Most people will see, you know, you hear about marathons and stuff all the time, don't you? And all, like running is quite a popular thing. So many people just think, oh, just, I don't want to run. And then they might write off exercise in general because they see running is, you know, maybe they generalize that as being the only form of exercise that's helpful. But of course, there's so many different ways we can move our body. And we know that, you know, all of them are going to be beneficial for us. So I think being curious and bringing an attitude of openness to just exploring different things, focusing on one thing at a time, trying to avoid this self-care overwhelm. If there's too many different things, I'm just, you know, like, again, it's an underlying issue we all have, right? With our yeah. sort of brain's processing ability and too much. So it's this choice paralysis, isn't it? It's like, well, I'm just gonna, not going to do anything. So I'd really recommend with that. So with the example of exercise is just, you know, writing a list of, different things that you might not have tried and then picking one thing and saying, I'm just going to give this a go for a week. And what we know about the science of habits is that just showing up to do something each day for even a couple of minutes, like this is a really crazy finding from the research is that by consistently showing up to begin with, even if it's for like a couple of minutes to do something, you're sort of building that habit and you're saying to yourself, okay, I can do this. It builds success and reward because even if you haven't done that thing for long, you've, you've at least given it a go. And mm. then building on that and spending longer and longer doing it. I remember when I first started, you know, I had a really unhealthy period at university and eventually decided, you know, enough's enough and needed to do some exercise. And it took me a while to work out what was the right thing for me. And I remember to begin with going for a run, I could barely do five minutes or something. And it took ages. <laughs> but now, you know, I can do a 30 minute run at a really fast pace. Mm. Um, so it's, it's important to bear in mind that if you're starting something, a self-care activity, whether it's exercising or meditating or something, for example, that it's okay to start small and just allow yourself to ease into it. And the most important thing is just consistency and sharing it with other people that you care about. You know, I think accountability is so helpful. So finding people that you trust and value their opinion is important and letting them know that you're going to try something out. And carving that, that time out and sharing your goals with people. And if you can find someone who's up for trying something out with you, that yeah. can be really helpful. So a nursing colleague would be really good. So that both of you, know, you both understand each other, the kind of work that you're doing and how difficult it is. And it's very motivating to do that together. Yeah, I love that. I think it's worth like reminding people, you said this earlier, like when you do something new, your brain automatically defaults and wants you to just stop doing it because it's probably too difficult. It goes in the too hard basket. And I think in my experience, like I would make all of that mean something about my abilities. So I'd automatically, when you said self-care there, I was like self-care sabotage. Like I'd be like, I'd try all the things and I'd implement all of the, the strategies. And then of course I'd fall in a heap because I'm like, I can't juggle it all. And I would kind of create that result for myself in my life. And I think that maybe a lot of nurses that are listening might do something similar. So small little micro steps compounding over time and maybe not overindulging in the chocolates at the nurse's station <laughs> is a good first step. <laughs> yeah, but I think with that kind of thing, I personally believe there is a big role of organisations in supporting that. So we know a big contributing factor to sort of unhelpful health behaviours is the environment we're in. So, you know, I'll give you a good example. Growing up, my mum was a smoker and I took up smoking. I smoked for 14 years or something mm -hmm. and then gave up. Eventually, because I basically transitioned out of a friendship group where people were smoking a lot. 
Mm. And it took that for me to not have those triggers and cues around me. So for example, with nurses, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading recently into dietary habits and, you know, obesity and nursing, basically. And there was a massive contributing factor of the kind of food hospitals make available for nurses, for example, on night shifts. And the leadership, whoever is responsible, you know, the matron or people who, or the nurse unit manager, you can do things to make sure that healthier options are available on that nurse's station and create a culture of eating healthier foods. So, you know, I think everyone should give themselves a bit of credit. Like, again, coming back to this thing of like, we're all hardwired to go for the chocolate, right? But we can help each other out by thinking about the environment that we set up for each other, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so powerful. And there's so much work that needs to be done in that space. And I can tell you from being at the nurse unit manager level and in these meetings where we're talking about building culture, none of this stuff comes in. Of course, none of it comes in. It's all about patient KPIs and then... Once every year, we do a patient staff experience survey where we like applaud ourselves for being like, you know, 50% engaged with the team. And it's pathetic. Hence why, of course, no one likes doing those surveys because nothing comes out of them. And it's just a tick box exercise. But not only that, like just pulling it back even further, if we could just get breaks, you know, (laughs) often a lot of us, I know for many years, I haven't taken breaks and those couple of things are boundaries, but also the way that it's designed. You know, you've got eight patients in the UK, for example, and you're chaotically running around. Sometimes you just can't take a break, you know, and there's no relief. There's no one, there's no systems in place to promote you. So then what you do go need is a donut from the coffee shop because you just want, yeah. you feel like you deserve something, right? Uh, hence why we have all of these challenges as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think something else that's worth saying about the self-care stuff is I had a great conversation with a woman. This is for my own podcast and she did a piece of research, a nurse research, her name's Darcy Copeland, and she did a piece of research it was a pilot study and I think she's currently running a full version of this study and it essentially asks and answers the question here you know, can nurses do effective self-care in 10 minutes at work right and she looked at I think it might have been a couple of units and this is in America and basically she had I think it was four different 10 minute interventions and they carved out the time for it over a six week period I believe and it was like journaling for 10 minutes, time spent outdoors for 10 minutes, meditating. And then there was one other one. I, I forget what the last one was. And just looked at, you know, can 10 minutes a day be effective? And of course, the answer is yes. So this comes back to this thing of like, you don't need to go for an hour run or something each day. Of course, the more you do, the better, right? Mm. But it, just 10 minutes. So on a nurse's shift, and I think like you say, there are lots of organizational barriers to this kind of thing happening. Mm. But we know that if we can make that time for nurses, or you know, if nurses can try and make the time for themselves, then that can be effective. So 10 minutes of just doing some journaling, 10 meditating, going for a walk, um, that stuff is going to be really powerful. It compounds in the long term, basically. Yeah. Even when I was a nurse unit manager, small things like just having like a culture board where people could just like put up really nice comments and things like that, just little micro things where every morning we'd be like, hey, there's a new note up here. And like, yeah, everybody look at me and roll their eyes. But I'm like, come on, we've got to build in some kind of culture activity here so that we can all really indulge and like applaud that person and, you know, lift the spirits. Because right now it is globally very difficult given the pandemic and all of the things that have been happening there is just these compounding issues and challenges and I wanted to ask you as a psychologist you know what your take on nurses seeking and needing therapy because I talk about it a lot on the podcast and I think that it's worthwhile mentioning because right now I chat to nurses every day 
And the general theme is like, they are just so done, feel like they're checked out. They are burnt out. They're not getting the support. They're taking it home to their families. You know, they can't disconnect. They're not sleeping. They're over all of the things. And I know for me, doing therapy was like a, such a game changer. It was what I needed, not only just from nursing, but from my own upbringing and my own kind of traumas and things that I went through. So talk to us a little bit, like if there's a nurse that's listening that potentially might need therapy, like what does that look like? I know there's lots of different types, but what does that look like? And what might be some of the kind of red flags or signs that somebody could benefit from therapy? Yeah. So I think having worked in Australia, I suppose your audience is primarily in Australia. I think just in terms of the kind of like procedure you'd go through there is you can go to, I mean, and I think it's great. The system there is actually really good, right? Mm -hmm. So you can go to your GP, you can book an appointment to discuss your mental health get a mental health care plan. The GP is able to allocate a longer appointment, which is fantastic because in the UK, it's like 10 minutes. You know, I actually remember when I finally built up the courage to go to the GP to say I had felt depressed. Like he was a lovely man, but it was such a short appointment. At that point, I'm sure that there will be people listening who probably feel like this. Many people delay seeking help for many months. And some people, a significant proportion of people never seek that professional help. And before you seek that help, you've gone through months of dwelling, going through things in your head and, you know, wondering what it's going to be like and and whatnot. And I think at least in Australia, the GP can give you a little bit longer Mm. to, to properly talk through things. So I think the first thing is booking that appointment with your GP. The great thing about Australia as well as I think it's probably a bit easier to have choice over who you see your provider of mental health treatment. So you do have to pay a fee. And I think my personal sort of view on this is it's actually good for people to invest a bit in their mental health, right? So nurses there actually get paid quite a bit more than in the UK as well. So it's interesting. We often place a lot of money in other things in our life. You know, I used to mm-hmm. spend loads of money on going out drinking and partying and stuff. And, you know, we might buy shiny things, right? But we often, we're reluctant to invest in our health. I know one of your big things is, you know, invest in yourself like yeah. with coaching and stuff. And I truly believe in that. And I think the great thing about that, though, is that if you're paying for it, you know, you can call up and ask to have an initial chat with a clinical psychologist or a psychologist and see if it's the right fit for you that would always be my recommendation because we know from the research and you know i know from personal experience like Mm -hmm. the relationship you have with your therapist is the foundation again of the sort of vehicle of the work you will do with them so there are lots of different types of therapy and some psychologists some people will quite dogmatically promote their particular type of therapy that that for me is a bit of a red flag for anyone because we know there's lots of different effective therapies different types would suit different people but ultimately the person you're sat in front of who's delivering that is probably more important so don't be afraid to ask for a you know a brief like conversation with the psychologist Mm -hmm. or clinical psychologist and don't be afraid to say you know what i don't think this is for me Mm. leave it to say can i sit with this and get back to you if you don't feel comfortable saying on the phone i don't think we're a good match i've had that before myself with people you know like i'm humble enough to know that i'm not my personality isn't going to match everyone and i've had people who didn't want to go ahead with me and that's fine Mm. so i think use the choice you have when you're seeking help Mm. and really think about in you know that investment in yourself your other part of the question was about 
what are sort of the, some of the red flags that you might need help, might need to seek treatment or help. You know, it's important to understand that mental health is something we all have and we all sort of, there's this spectrum of sort of mental health, which is, you know, we're functioning well to mental ill health. And I think the time to seek treatment is when things are really impacting the roles you have in your day-to-day life quite significantly. So we all will experience anxiety at times around things. You know, we all sometimes have a bit of low mood or something might happen in our life, like a breakup or something. You're sad. And for example, my dad died last year and, you know, I've been grieving and I was very sad at times, but it wasn't impacting my ability to do my day to day things generally. So I didn't feel a need to seek treatment. So I think if you're a nurse out there and you're finding that, say, for example, anxiety, you're not sleeping at night, you're completely sleep deprived, you're worrying constantly every day, you're worrying about multiple topics, it's really impacting your ability to sustain your attention on things. Maybe you've noticed that you're making more clinical errors, for example, in your personal life, perhaps you're a parent, you're finding you're just not being able to focus on childcare properly. You know, maybe you've made some sort of like mistakes or whatever in that kind of role. Then it's probably time to think about getting some support. You've noticed a significant disruption to your ability to function in your, mm. the, the roles and tasks that are important to you in your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's when I'd say, you know, get some support. Yeah. That's so valuable and so insightful. And I'm sure that will help lots of people listening. Just to share for me, um, when I was in that kind of depressed state as a nurse and suffering like the worst anxiety that I've had, I would like rehearse everything ahead of time. So I would be in the shower rehearsing conversations, like I wouldn't be able to get to sleep. And then when I did have time off or days off for my weekends, I would like need to go to bed at like midday. I was so exhausted, like just so, I've never, ever been like that in my life. And it was really telling and, you know, I couldn't see it, even though I was in it. And my partner was like, hey, (laughs) you really need to go and see someone. And the smallest of things, I was doing my master's and I was putting lots of pressure on myself. And uh, I was doing my master's and I was trying to learn how to do epidemiology statistics, which I'm sure with the double PhD, you're all over the epi and the stats. But that was not my forte and that was hellish. And that little trigger for me just blew up. And that's when I realized, like, I just wasn't functioning in pretty much nearly every capacity in my life. So super valuable. Thank you for sharing that. In terms of your work now, tell us more about where you're going and your vision for Nurse Wellbeing Mission. You guys must go and check out all of Nathan's resources. We'll drop them in the show notes. But tell us more about your vision for being the founder of Nurse Wellbeing Mission. Yes, I've got pretty lofty goals, Um, (laughs) quite aspirational goals, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. You know, I think for me, this prevention stuff is really what I find the most valuable and important thing. It's not to say that nurses who are seasoned nurses don't deserve the support as well, because of course they do. But at the moment, I'm just me and I've got to think of my particular focus. And I think consistent with my own values around prevention, I really want to change, help change nursing education. So in the UK, hopefully it's going to start here. I'm working with some universities at the moment and it's starting small and I think that it's always going to be like that. So helping to embed more of this self-care and self-compassion stuff, um, but also helping to coach the leaders and Mm -hmm. help think about organizational 
cultural change within academia, I think is important. And eventually, you know, obviously curricular standards are set by different governing bodies, aren't they? So in the UK, it's the Nursing Midwifery Council. You know, if anyone from the NMC is listening, this is my aim. And of course, I want to do this in conjunction with people in the nursing profession. And yeah, I think just shifting that focus back to perhaps what it used to be a little bit more like. And I think that is really going to be where we're going to get most bang for our buck, if you see what I mean, you know, trying to change the educational system. Because, of course, then what happens is you've got these nursing and midwifery students. If they learn all this stuff, they become better at self-care, they become compassionate leaders. Then, of course, they're going to go out into the healthcare workforce and then Mm. that is going to have long lasting effect. So I I really think student nursing, nursing curricula and early career nursing. So, for example, preceptorship Mm. programs, that's something else that I want to be focusing on is helping embed this stuff. Because, of course, there's a transition, isn't there, from third year nursing into preceptorship post and that all of that stuff should carry on into preceptorship, I think. So. Yeah, it's a mixture of stuff I'm doing, really. It's some of the traditional kind of workshoppy type stuff. But I think also, Mm -hmm. as you know, the power of coaching is really important. And I think working with leaders to help shift their mindset around this stuff is probably the first thing that's necessary. Because like you said before, there's lots of barriers to self-care. And I think we need to work on removing some of those barriers and reprioritizing this stuff. Yeah, I love that. I love your vision and the big goals and all of these amazing things that you're working towards. I think, you know, having been in the system and what I see day to day, what you touched on there is there's this concept that we all talk about online, all the nurse kind of creators and coaches and mentors and entrepreneurs around the missing semester, right? Which is effectively kind of like what you're looking to kind of fill the gap and love that idea. And that's what we're doing currently in our GCLP is helping people like our graduate career launch programs, helping people see that, you know, really like one of my friends says, it's not what happens in the ward that's a problem. It's what happens in your mind. Like, in you know, I love that kind of slogan. And there are just so many stop points where we're just missing opportunities to really empower people to become the best potential human that they can be. And then of course, then be the best nurse. I mean, in my experience, transitioning through, you know, over 10 to 15 roles, a chronic job hopper here, building my career across the UK and here. No one ever. I don't think any of my managers have ever really stopped and checked in and asked how I was. And, you know, if at ever, like I had a moment, I remember like having my first medication errors a couple of months into my career. And I was like in tears about it. Like I was so upset about it. And there was like no emotional support. And they took away my ability to deliver medications because I made one mistake, you know, without any kind of emotional support and coaching and check-ins. So there was like shame and guilt and fear and all of these things that just really don't help us to be and show up as our best selves. So I love where you're going with that. And I think that that missing semester is what will help clinicians build sustainable careers. I think right now people don't think that nursing is a sustainable career. I certainly run that story because like, how can you do it for the rest of your life without all of the support that you deserve and need? I don't think people should be expected to either. I think it's ludicrous, to be honest. I think with the lack of prioritization, like, you know, we, well, I mean, it's probably more so in this country, but terrible pay for nurses, the lack of government funding to really bolster the workforce to make, you know, you should not be expected to work your life. You're basically sacrificing your life. When your mental health suffers, people do feel this. They feel like they've sacrificed their life for what? And you know what? Like the government doesn't care about you as an individual person, unfortunately. 
Yeah. So there needs to be so much more done. And it's, yeah. you know, I get really passionate about it. It's not right the way things are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, there's so many changes that we could talk forever about. I love that idea of getting into the unis and empowering them there and showing them that they have power. You know, like that's the biggest thing. They think that like they're so desperate to get this job and it's like, no, like they need you, right? So like you like show up as your best self. Anyway, love your work in that space. So talk to us about some of your big goals. If you're keen to share them, we'd love to know as we kind of wrap up around how we can help nurses or what steps we can take next to help nurses nurses and midwives take more of a preventative approach towards their well-being so i mean i guess within back going back to the, this that context of universities there are some key things really i think to begin with university well we know that what's called screening and intervening programs are really effective for example so i suppose my vision for this is that from day one universities are providing some real just information education personal stories from nurses about the emotional challenges and the nature of the work getting people to reflect on their past experiences because we know that a higher proportion of nurses go into training having had adverse childhood experiences previous trauma that predisposes them to higher rates of mental ill health and mm -hmm. a sensitivity to stress, basically. So getting people to reflect on some of how their past, their strengths and their vulnerabilities might impact their ability to do a job and providing support through, you know, some of the traditional structures that are already in place, so through clinical tutors and stuff like that. But developing that self-awareness from the outset, using, you know, psychometric data and stuff, so, you know, well-being surveys and things, and offering support and education and training stuff at an early stage. So it doesn't need to be a prescriptive approach. It doesn't need to be everyone must do this because people just aren't going to take that up. But, you know, for example, something I'm really interested in and big on is sleep. So mm. we know that sleep difficulties predict later depression, mm. right? And sleep difficulties, so insomnia is really common in the population anyway but in mm. students there are higher rates of insomnia so for example getting people to you know fill out a few questionnaires right okay so you have sleep difficulties well would you like to do the sleep program we have through our well-being service or whatever really robust data to support the evidence of how that can be effective for people so you could probably prevent a bunch of people becoming depressed through just having healthy sleep habits we know that there's there's also great advice for shift work for sleep as well mm -hmm. so that would be something that i want to help embed as well is providing education around that from the outside mm -hmm. i'm sure you had that experience I'm sure you've used like you said before you struggled with sleep working night shifts day shifts alternate you know this kind of thing we know that there are ways that you can mitigate against some of the negative effects of that so helping to provide that education and training for nurses there you know there's also i suppose just the more general self-care and healthy habits so embedding that initially building in a culture of that early on and helping really give people permission to do that stuff you mm -hmm. know it's okay to take care of yourself it requires the academic leaders and the clinical tutors to model that for it to actually be okay yeah, they're just a few of the things. And, you know, I've got a bunch of other ideas. You know, there's other things around peer support. You know, the role of social support is instrumental in preventing mental health difficulties. So just paying more attention to that. We know that so much more stuff is done online and not in person. And so helping encourage that collegial and peer support between nurses from an early stage and through the different years of their training as well. And I think 
a combination of all of those things and basically this missing semester but you know essentially scattered and peppered throughout the training curriculum mm -hmm. is then gonna basically embedding a culture of preventative health and preventative mental health mm -hmm. will then pay dividends later on not just for the healthcare system in terms of patient outcomes and everything but for the nursing workforce for their like their satisfaction for their well-being for, and that, that has an effect on their every area of their life not just in nursing mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that so much. As you were talking, there's so many things firing off about it. I'm sure everybody listening has so many questions, like connections to reasons why maybe they do things and why they came to nursing, you know, like that, that whole connection to childhood trauma and that high prevalence, like, you know, we obviously come into the profession because we want to care for people. And it usually comes from an experience earlier on in life, all super fascinating. And yeah, thank you so much for doing all of that amazing work. And we're excited to see what that will look like as we move forward. Just randomly today, one of my good friends was talking to a very high New South Wales health officer in a nurse wellbeing role, like in a nurse, senior nursing role. And she was challenging them on the lack of support and the lack of initiatives for nurses. And of course, that was met with, we have, you know, nurse resilient programs, like nurse resilience programs, and we have flexible, all of the things that we don't have. <laughs> they gave us a very good politician uh, response. So yeah, we've still got work to do. And I'm sure, you know, this work will pick up and gain traction. And one day, maybe it will be global and will be impacting everybody everywhere in the nurse wellbeing mission. How cool would that be? Well, yeah, I mean, that is where I'd like to take things definitely globally. I think it's an example here. And of course, if there's anyone in Australia who wants to have a conversation, please get in touch because, you know, I work remotely as well. But yeah, this stuff is really important and it's, mm -hmm. it's really necessary. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for being a nursing and midwifery ally. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, skills, wisdom, experience, your life experience with us today. So many amazing insights. Where can people connect with you? There's a few places. I actually, before I say that, I just want to actually say thank you to all of the nurses and midwives that are listening to this. I think it's really important to express gratitude for the work that you all do because often you don't get that gratitude and I personally am very thankful and there are other people out there like me who are really grateful and see the work you do and if you're feeling you know under pressure burnt out I appreciate that you've given a lot for the profession and yeah I just wanted to say thank you but yeah in terms of finding me so people can visit my website it's www.nursewellbeingmission.com I have a Facebook group that is where I provide and share resources, basically. So um, videos and blogs and things. And my podcast will be on there. That is all designed around supporting nurses and midwives. So if you head over to Facebook and just search for Nurse and Midwife Wellbeing Mission, the group is called there. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well. So just search for my name, Nathan Illman. It's I-double-L-M. Yeah, and if you want to reach out to me, my email and phone number and stuff is on my website. So go over there to check it out. Perfect. Love that. Thank you. We will make sure that all of that is in the show notes below. Finally, thank you so much. We are launching a coaching membership for nurses to talk about basically all of these things. So I will be definitely yeah. um, chatting to you and inviting you into that membership. We'd love to run some kind of masterclasses and things like that. So we would love to have you in there and see you there. But yeah, otherwise, thank you so much for your time. Love your work. Looking forward to what you create moving forward.
Oh, thank you. Thanks, Zoom. It's been yeah, an absolute pleasure to be on here and really great connecting with you. Awesome. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you next week. Stay safe and stay forever curious. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, please take a wee minute to leave a review. It would mean the absolute world to me. If you are ready to start taking action in your career and you need some support, why wait? Come and join my private Facebook community. The link is in the show notes below. Within the community, we take what we discuss in this podcast and we put it into action. Currently, I am looking for nurses who are ready to stop playing small and invest in themselves to create the life and the career they want to live. If that sounds like you, then please get in touch. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay forever curious, my nursing friends.